0: This week, we talk with Larry Maturoni of Comcast. In the news segment, a security design choice comes home to roost. A breach leaves credentials uncontained, and we take time to speculate on side channels and more. Stay tuned for Application Security Weekly.
1: This is a Security Weekly production. Signal Sciences secures the most important web applications, APIs, and microservices of the world's leading companies. Protecting over 7,500 applications and 150 billion production requests per week, Signal Sciences' next-gen WAF and RASP help companies increase security and maintain site reliability without sacrificing velocity, all at the lowest total cost of ownership. Signal Sciences' patented technology protects any application against any attack with integrations into any DevOps toolchain. Signal Sciences, demand more from your WAF. Learn more at signalsciences.com forward slash PSW. Welcome to Application Security
0: Weekly. This is episode 59, recorded April 29th, 2019. I'm your host, Mike Shima. I'm here with Matt Alderman, who joins us from Business Security Weekly. Good morning, everybody. I'm getting (laughs) ready for
1: another snowstorm. uh, The love of spring in Colorado.
0: Representing the Broncos as well. Also, John Kinsella is here as a co-host for the show.
2: Hey guys, how are you?
0: No snow here, just a little
2: bit
0: of fog. Register for our upcoming webcasts with Kaseya and observe it by going to securityweekly.com slash webcasts. If you have missed any of our previously recorded webcasts, you can find them at securityweekly.com slash on demand. Attending KubeCon and Cloud NativeCon Europe 2019 in Barcelona, May 20 to 23rd, 2019, Join your peers at the Cloud Native Transformation Summit 2019 hosted by Sysdig on May 20th. Our very own Matt Alderman will be emceeing the event. Pre-registration is required. You can add it on during your KubeCon plus Cloud Native Con registration. Today, we have Larry Maccheroni from Comcast. Larry is an industry recognized thought leader on DevSecOps, Lean, Agile, and Analytics. He currently leads the DevSecOps transformation at Comcast. Previously, Larry led the Insights product line at Rally Software, where he had published the largest ever study correlating <coughs> development team practices with performance. Before Rally, Larry worked at Carnegie Mellon with the Software Engineering Institute and SciLab for seven years, conducting research on cybersecurity and software engineering. While there, he co-led the launch of the DHS-funded Build Security In initiative. He has also served as principal investigator for the NSA's Code Assessment Methodology Project, on the advisory board for IARPA's Stone Soup program, and as the Department of Energy's Los Alamos National Labs Fellow. Larry, welcome to Application Security Weekly. Thanks for having me, guys. Really appreciate it. So the transformation of DevSecOps, that's one of the coolest things, um, but it also is sort of two points, right? You need to go transform from something into something else. Maybe we can start off with, what does a DevSecOps mean to you and why should we be transforming into
3: it? So I I actually have a love-hate relationship with the... (laughs)
0: So, in what
3: sense here? Because so on, on, one, on one hand, yeah, well, on one hand, it 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 captures the focus of security, but on the other hand, if you're doing DevOps right, then you're doing the security aspect. So uh, it's almost redundant. And I have the same definition for both. DevOps is, and DevSecOps is, empowered engineering teams taking ownership of how their product performs all the way to pr- production. I, th- I that resonates
0: a lot with me. I like to, th- to say that application security is kind of a, an emergent property of DevOps done right, and um, some of the ways I talk about it are I usually focus on that idea of empathy, meaning developers, DevOps people, they know what to do, they care about building tools and the security needs that collaboration. But you've actually added on with a couple other dimensions. You talk about trust and and building trust with DevSecOps. And empathy is one of those pieces, but there's more to it than that in um, your trust algorithm.
3: Yeah, so um, I was sitting in the office of, of a security leader at Comcast when I first started and I was describing to him that, that there's a profound lack of trust between the development community and the security group. The developers think, oh, well, security is just a bunch of unfunded mandates. They don't understand our world. Uh, there's no way we can do what they're saying. Um, so we can just hide from them and ignore them. The security folks are saying, those developers are lazy. They're just putting out crap that's gonna get us hacked. And so you know, with that attitude difference, there's, there's no way you're going to be, be working together. And and I said, well, so we have to build trust between our group, the security group, and and the development team. And and the response from this leader was, well, it's not like there's a formula for building trust. And and I said, well, actually, I do sort of have a a formula for it. It, it, In the numerator of this this formula, there's credibility plus reliability plus empathy, as you mentioned. And all of that is divided by apparent self-interest. And so if, the, let's talk about the denominator first. So there's always a self-interest, right? We wouldn't be working with the developers if we didn't get something out of it. But we wanna minimize that. So if the denominator is is small, then the numerator dominates and the trust formula you know, will be larger. And you minimize that denominator by emphasizing the shared interest. Our stock value will all go up if we don't uh, have Security incidents, and it will go down, crashing maybe down if we do have security incidents. Um, and then in the numerator, I, you know, you mentioned empathy, and that's really important. You have to show the the development folks that you do understand where they're coming from. and and a key aspect of that is is that you you've done it before. You know, it's really hard for security people who've never written a line of code, or even ones that have done it, but five years ago was the most recent experience they had. It's really hard for them to show that empathy in a real deep sort of way. Um, same thing with credibility. It's it, That's the first uh, element in the numerator. If you have not done it, if you can't speak intelligently about branching strategies or what a pull request mechanism is and, and how we can tie in automated security testing tools into the same place you put your regular testing tools, then you would never be able to sort of gain that the numerator of that trust algorithm. And then, of course, reliability is is the same everywhere. It's say what you're going to do, and then, and uh, that that doesn't that holds true regardless of the of the environment.
0: What I find interesting about that, you you mentioned a pull request, but I think that was about as technical as that got so far. So, for example. You know, we're talking about DevSecOps, and we haven't mentioned cloud or containers or CI/CD pipelines. How much of the technology is actually necessary or a key component of this, or is it more about how building credibility, doing building that reliability, do what you say you'll do, and understanding how code is written? Um, it sounds like that technology part hasn't been as important, or maybe that's a different property of this DevSecOps kind of transformation.
3: I, I think the latter. It's it's a different property. And and it does sort of roll up into the trust algorithm in the credibility and the reliability aspects. So um for instance, if if we when I got to Comcast three years ago, there was this requirement, this policy that said you shouldn't put any secrets in your source code repositories. So we went around basically asking teams, so okay you just making sure you don't, you don't have any secrets in your source code repositories. Can I take a look at your source code? And there's certificates and passwords and all sorts of stuff mm-hmm. in there. Thousands of those incidents of it. And I was like, well, you got to get them out of there. And we're like, well, how do we do that, they asked. And we were like, well, we don't really have an easy story for you on how to do it. There's a team over here that did it this way and a team over here that did it this way. Tell you what, let's hold off on this policy enforcement until we give you the easy button for it. And so it is a lot about providing self-service services. So we stood up a Secrets as a Service service, essentially a wrapper around HashiCorp Vault, and then uh, developed all the recipes essentially and documentation that allow any team to, to bake that in. So you can't have the credibility and the reliability without, without actually uh, knowing how to do it, without actually standing up those things yourselves.
1: But I think, yeah. Larry, one of the important parts here is it starts with communication right? It's the security team and the development teams and the DevOps teams actually having a conversation and, and starting to build levels of that credibility uh, and empathy to really figure out what are some of the right solutions to bring together to kind of bring these two organizations, which have traditionally been two separate orgs, right? And getting them to work together to solve this problem.
3: Yeah. All too often, communication, though, is is sort of a kumbaya word, and it's, it's uh, you know, I can, I, if I yell at you, I'm communicating with you, right? That's <laughs> not a very healthy thing. So it's not just, uh, it's collaboration more than communication in, in, in my mind. So um, for instance, if we stand up a service that, uh, a scanning service, let's say, um, but it's very difficult for them to use it, we have to be very open to hearing that. We have to be act- actively reaching out for that feedback and and constantly changing it and improving it, so it's easy
2: for them to do it. You know, there's something interesting about uh, and uh, you know I think all of us have thought a lot about this this DevOps thing and how do you get um, the developers to buy in on the DevSecOps side of it. But listening to you talk, Larry, you just made me realize something interesting, and I mean this in a good way versus it could be taken negatively. But really, what you're sort of suggesting is to a degree that the security team or the SecOps team sort of social engineers the developers. So, you know, it hit me when you were talking specifically around building that trust, right? And that's really what if you're doing social ends, you're going out and you're really working on how do you get through that person's mindset and actually get them to um, be a little more open to some of the ideas you're thinking about. And really, in a way, that's sort of what you're thinking about doing. So I wonder, have you thought about this from a psychological point of view? Or or how do you sort of really befriend those people?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, uh, I, if you go through my career, you, you mentioned it in the bio, I've got a uh, I'm considered an expert in Agile, an Agile metrics, and Agile transformation. I'm considered an expert in analytics. And, and now I'm considered an expert in security. But, but really the underlying common theme on all of this is how do you get development teams to change their behavior? So I've been a huge student of, of sort of traditional change management, but in mostly understanding how it doesn't work on developers, why are developers unique? Um, and then what is the, the, the psychology of developer and the sociology of development team that you can leverage to actually get them to change their behavior? And so I've got a whole framework, essentially, that, that ha- the trust algorithm is a small part of, actually, that uh, accomplishes this behavior change in development the teams.
0: It sounds like you also need that behavior change for the security team as well, because as you mentioned, rather than just saying don't put those secrets into you know your your repo. you've actually got to give some you, know, you got to give developers an alternative to actually well what should we be doing? And you mentioned having like a key management system. but that sounds like a service that the security team then supports. Is that the case and what is it what's it like to actually go to the security team and say you actually are responsible for a service you now need to deal with uptime. you now actually have users that you need to approach this from a product management perspective.
3: Yeah, so that is that is difficult, um, and if I give a talk at a conference, I, I t- I'm a developer and I I hire developers and I teach them all the security they know. So I I come across really strongly and 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 have a ton of trust and credibility with development teams. But a lot of what I have to say is is scary to the security folks in the audience, and so um, yeah, I have to work on. On sort of bringing them along at, at Comcast, I had a, a little bit of help. the The woman who helped launch Build Security Initiative with me at, at Carnegie Mellon over oh, fifteen years ago uh, is named Newper Davis, and and she's the one who brought me on. and And she sort of has the same attitude of yeah, she's a developer too. Mission Security Officer now at Comcast, but so I had this this huge advantage that the CISO wanted security organization to transform into this so i have that 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 huge advantage but but even so i still have to to bring them along with that way of thinking and the key thing that i have to get over is this this concept that the security group's role is gating it's no longer gating It's no longer policing they're in devops they're shipping to production all the time and you want them to ship as soon as possible you don't want to wait months for them to to do uh, you know, threat modeling, initial uh, security architecture review, and then do the development, and then have a big long evaluation before the first time they go to production. No, that's not the DevOps a message, that's not the way we work. And, and so I do have to sort of get them over this gating mentality and switch them to a learning organization mentality where you're really just trying to provide feedback to the development teams. Our role is no longer as gatekeepers. We are really feedback providers, advisors, toolsmiths to provide things like this key management service. And and so we have this thing called a pledge that actually outlines this. It's from the perspective of the security organization. It was one of the first things I sort of got approved At Comcast, not just by the CISO but by the rest of the organization, and it was a tough sell in some cases because they 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 weren't ready to let go of the policing and gating role that they have.
1: Yeah, I mean, you were lucky to have a CISO that understood the the future role of security. But there's a lot of organizations out there that aren't there yet, Larry. I mean, they're still they're still kind of fighting it. They still think they're the gatekeepers. How? I mean, what are some of the things that they have to do to kind of? Get, evolve? Because I think if they don't evolve, they're they're going to be pushed to the side and, and no longer relevant in some of these organizations.
3: Well, there, there is some truth to that. I mean, the, the agile movement was essentially the death of QA departments at most organizations um, because the development team now was responsible for quality instead of throwing it over the wall to another group. And, and I see this same thing happening now with DevOps for operations people and, and security people for DevSecOps, the, that, that as the development team takes more and more ownership of it, their role is going to change. And some of those fe- folks will no longer be employed in this area at some point, the ones that don't transform. So I, I try to scare them. I, that, that's really my, my <laughs> biggest technique to get the security folks. I'm like, this is going to happen. This is what happened to the QA folks. This is what's happening to the operations folks. This is going to happen to you unless you adapt. So that's the first thing. I scare them with their, their job. And, and, and you know, that, that gets them sort of paying attention, maybe resisting a little bit. But, but then I, I scare them um, in, in a different way. I, I basically uh, use an example of, of the uh, chaos monkey. I asked them if they know what chaos monkey is and and most of the time they do know what chaos monkey is it. It's basically a, a, a Randomly shutting down of services at at netflix um, and, and it teaches the developers how to how to code in such a way It encourages them to code in such a way that it's self-healing and And resilient to this sort of thing and and like so do they do this in a test environment? No, they do this in production so so they're why are they doing it in production? And are you comfortable with that as a security person testing in production? And uh, of course they're not. And I'm like, well, let's think through this. Would Netflix be as resilient today had they not made that decision? You you think that the best way to achieve high levels of security is by gating, by, by being careful, by being cautious. Whereas uh, we have data that proves that the best way to best to best security is rapid feedback cycles, even if that feedback comes from production. And and you should be seeking out that sort of rapid feedback back cycle. A, a, a development team that can fix a problem in in minutes is 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 more likely to lower the risk window dramatically than one that is used to a three or four month release cycle with a bunch of gating. If something happens in production, they're screwed because it'll take them days at least if they totally expedite the fix. Um, Whereas a a DevOps team that's really used to pushing multiple times a day can fix it like that.
1: Yeah, which is why the other thing of integration into the process and integrating aspects into code development and deployment is so important because if you're hoping for a bunch of external factors to control your environment for you, it's harder and harder in this world where things are changing so fast. Those external mechanisms are not going to stay up to speed and up to date with what you're doing potentially in, in your software development life cycles.
3: Exactly. There's no way that a human gating process can keep up with the automated DevOps cycles. So you have to automate all of it. So I, I talked to development teams in particular about I asked them how much do you trust the gauntlet of your CI C D pipeline to invalidate a bad artifact before it gets pushed to production. And the answer to that question usually tells me how mature their DevOps practice is. And and from there, I can sort of build on it. Well, now we want to trust it more from a security perspective. So let's beef up your CICD pipeline. Let's add IAST tools. Uh, Let's add software composition analysis tools. Maybe let's add static analysis tools. um, And maybe let's add some dynamic analysis tools. But there's there's risks of doing that in a pipeline. They don't necessarily perform fast enough. So I asked and SCA are the two that I start with for most development teams.
1: Right, start with some of the basics, maybe source code analysis reviews, part of the code check-in process, right? Those things are a little easier to integrate on the front end of the, of the process.
3: Correct, so, but the automation too. So um, run it in the pipeline, run these automated scans in the pipeline. Every time there's a pull request, Kick it off, just like you kick off your functional test. Do it right in parallel with your
2: functional test. So security is, um, you're in an interesting position. And I want to go back a little bit to, you You mentioned fear, which is always sort of uh, got to be careful with fear when you're using that to manipulate, um, or excuse me, to encourage. Uh, but. <laughs> you know, we've been talking about really mostly about security and the development side of things, but let's sort of focus around, look at the other direction, security and operations. Um, and you talked a little bit about SecOps, but I'm just thinking more purely the operational folk. From my experience, they're actually harder to convince to come look at the green grass on the other side. Uh, a lot more is, you know, we use the phrase server huggers. What's been your experience over there? I think, you know, at least when I, at least maybe I'm lucky, but when I interact with the developers, um, you know, from consultant point of view or where I am now, they're usually eager to learn and try new things and, and see what cutting edge stuff is. And, you know, coming out to DockerCon here this week in San Francisco. But how do you, it seems like there's a lot more um, resistance on the operational side to try something new or become more um, flexible or, you know, like do some of the things you're talking about, like Chaos Monkey. How do you work with that or how do you get those guys interested?
3: So I think um, the, the, Concept of shadow IT is actually most people think of it as a negative, but but in this sense, it's really a positive. Developers have a lot of opportunity to go out and and to basically push stuff into into a live environment. And sometimes they're doing it for work, but often they're doing it on the side. So, for instance, I'm I'm the senior director at Comcast. I'm not expected to write code. Um, but I write code every day, not for Comcast, but for a dozen or so open source projects that I have, and I've configured them all to have robust CI/CD pipelines. And so any developer in the community who wants to contribute to that sort of gets an experience: of, Hey, you have to you have to sort of work in this automated testing environment, and if your stuff doesn't automatically pass, I'm not going to accept the pull request against it. So, um, so I think I think developers are are the force that can overcome the resistance of operations simply by uh, pushing into AWS on their own and, and ignoring um, a lot of the traditional ops folks. If not, they're allowed to do work, they're doing it outside of that and then educating the, the ops folks after the fact.
2: So that's, but I, I'm going to keep pushing on this, right? Because that's, that's sort of the core of this. And I agree with what you're saying. And, you know, it's a comment I made to someone recently is, uh, why, why is it taking you two or three months to, to spin up a, a a new server when I can do it in five minutes and 15 clicks on Amazon? But still your day job, if you're in sort of the larger companies, but a lot of our listeners are in, you can't just go out and start spinning up production systems on a public cloud. You know, you've, your company has put millions of dollars into having a data center in your racks and all this type of stuff. So still, how do you? there must be some way to sort of, Dangle a carrot preferably over getting the baseball bat. How do you get those guys interested? Is it's um, you know, as we can talk about our side projects and those type of things, but how do you how do you move everyone else along and get them along with it? That I think that's something our listeners would really um be happy running into that as well.
3: I, I don't necessarily have a silver bullet for you there. I think that the good solutions will win out over time. And and so we all like the idea of containers. We all like the idea of, of, of uh, uh, serverless, fun- functions as a service, um, as really easy to, to operate. And developers sort of gravitate towards things that are easier to operate. The manual being associated with ops. Um, I think that over time that will just eventually win out. I, I see large companies like Comcast, essentially the, the uh, chief software architects saying, we don't want any more data centers and we're gonna invest aggressively in migrating as many applications as possible. You see government entities uh, put out huge contracts for lift and shift into the cloud. Um, and that's because they, they realize it's, it's much more efficient to get rid of your own data centers. So I think it'll happen. I think it's already happening. I don't think we need to encourage it much more.
0: I think if I, yeah, if I were to add to that too, one of the things that you were saying, uh, Larry, was making it easy. And um, some of the things that I've seen in sort of that encouraging that move to the cloud, or why you know the why should we bother, or you know how do we pull that upside side along, is there's a lot of aspects of deploying to cloud that can reduce friction. And we use, as a security team, you can shift the boundaries of where you need to have your controls or where you need to um, be monitoring systems. So, for example, if you have a nice story of key management that allows you to set up service to service, mutual authentication between systems, you no longer even have to have that gatekeeping aspect of security, but also gatekeeping aspect of can I deploy to the Cloud? You can let people deploy and basically broaden that sandbox for developers and ops team, I think, in um, that way get them more used to that exercise of, here is how something can get rolled out in a matter of minutes, let's play with it, let's have that chaos monkey approach so that if something does go disastrously wrong or on small disasters, uh, we can clean up from it. i wanted to also use that as a bit of a segue to say, what might be some of the anti-patterns or what might be something to avoid rather than in in, in the sense of trying to do this all at once? Or I know you weren't advocating this, but the idea of like, Fear, uncertainty, and DevOps. You know, we don't want to go quite that that FUD route of scaring people into this, nor gatekeeping them. But what else should we avoid in terms of a landmine for making this go successfully?
3: So, anti-patterns. Um, so, you see a lot of what I call cargo cult DevOps. It's a there's a funny story at Comcast. Uh, one of the project manager. Program managers, you know, basically in charge of uh, uh, hundreds of development teams, um, their project management aspects or their program management aspects of of their work. Um, He came out with this sort of poll. He wanted to find out uh, how if people knew how many DevOps teams there were at Comcast. And so I said, um, so. DevOps teams at Comcast, you mean teams that are really doing DevOps, not just development teams. He's like, what's the difference? So there's this tendency to sort of relabel development teams, DevOps teams, without them actually being DevOps teams. <laughs> and so I refer to this as cargo cult DevOps. The the, the phrase cargo cult comes from uh, World War II. At the end of World War II, the Americans had uh, airstrips on a lot of the islands in the South Pacific. And uh, the natives noticed that when the Americans spoke into the banana and put the coconuts on their ears, that the gods would send down this magical flying creature with food and supplies for them. So when the war was over and the Americans left, um, the natives put the coconuts on their ears and spoke into the banana. And then they wondered why it didn't work. And, and we have a lot of that at, at, at Comcast and, and I think in the industry where folks are Going through some of the motions of DevOps, yeah, we have a Jenkins server somewhere, um, but they aren't really understanding how it benefits them. And so they're not un- understanding how it all works. So they're missing sort of key elements, like the radio, uh, you know, hooked up to the microphone and the headset and the someone on the other end of that radio, um, they're missing some of the key elements and they, they're just doing, doing the steps. And so I think the biggest anti-pattern that I see is teams that uh, are claiming to be DevOps without uh, are true, truly trusting their automation without actually automating their pushes to production. And, and I, I, I found, and this is recently about you know within the last six months, I found that there's almost a one-to-one correlation between the teams that do uh, pull requests with a hundred percent code review of every line of code, second set of eyes on every pull request, um, and teams that are doing. Uh, real DevOps and that the teams that aren't doing pull requests, aren't really doing real DevOps. It's it's almost perfect. It's almost a perfect uh, predictor.
0: That's a great point. Yeah, read code. And the, I think that also, I guess, ties back to that empathy as well. And communication and collaboration because to do, you know, there's a big difference between just here's a empty plus one and actually here's understanding the code and talking through it. So it does sound like that's definitely part of the uh, the the story, the the formula you've been building. Definitely, definitely. Matt, John, I think we're we're running out of our own DevSecOps time, but want to make sure there are any final questions you wanted to throw out there, especially nice, big, long ones that would take another half hour to answer.
2: Oh, no, I'm
3: good. I, oh, do we have I another just, half hour? I can, I can keep talking.
2: I just want to say I, I, absolutely, I just absolutely love that analogy about the uh, Cargo Cult DevOps. I'm going to be using that a lot, so thank you. We'll
3: You're There's a wiki page-y for page for Cargo Cult, by the way. So, you can go look it up if you want the story again. Well, you're, yeah, you've definitely been talking to a bunch of code nerds too.
0: So, I think after, after uh, we're going to take a break in a second and cover the news. But once we do that, I think we're going to start looking for all these repos you have and start submitting our own pull requests ourselves. Great. <laughs> Love to have it. <laughs> Cool. Well, thanks again for joining us, Larry. And um, it was a great uh, <clears throat> excuse me. It was a great story that we got from you around transforming DevSecOps at Comcast, as well as I think some good ideas and takeaways that we can that other enterprises can use in order to actually do this in, in a in a successful way, in a way that's actually gets beyond that gatekeeping. So uh, thanks again. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure talking Thank to you. you. Right. We'll take a quick break now and then we're going to cover the news for this week.